Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguero. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of St. Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. Uh, I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. Bill, how are you feeling today? Man, if I told you I was feeling good, I'd be lying to you. I feel like I got hit by a turnip truck. They backed it up and ran me over again. Uh, yeah, yesterday I went down there because, you know, they, they offer you shingle shots, you know, for shingles that thing that you get from chickenpox later. And, um, I went down there, and the nurse is down there, got no gloves on, and she looks like a homeless person. I'm like, what the hell? So I asked, would you mind putting the gloves on when you're going to inject that into my arm? And she looks at me like I'm crazy or something. And I said, I, I understand that maybe you don't, you're not used to doing that, but I'd appreciate it if you would. And I guess she just, it was the most, you know, obscure request that Abby's made to her in her life. So she, you know, puts on the gloves, she's upset. And she puts this shot at me, and okay, I leave, I, I thank her, of course, and I leave. Man, I woke up this morning, and it felt like someone had a freaking drum over my head, and they were just banging on it. So I had me a cup of coffee right now with some Todd on, and hoping that I don't say something really dumb on this episode. <laughs> well, you're not one to complain. I could say that you're a pretty stoic guy on that level, so... This must be pretty bad. What is the reaction from? Is it uh, just an immune response? Yeah, no, I don't know. It's, it's my, it's like a shingles thing they gave me, and, and it just feel like my arm hurts, my back hurts, my head hurts. I feel like I got beat up. I mean, I felt better coming out of the ring, you know, decades ago than I feel right now. I mean, I just feel beat up. Yeah, I'm wondering if you have a healthy immune system if that stuff hits you harder than someone who doesn't. And I think there's some science behind that because 
when I got the COVID booster, I would say I got equally as sick as when I got COVID. Yeah, that's crazy, right? Yeah. The symptoms are worse. Hey, any commercials, it's like the Lipitor for, you know, less cholesterol, whatever it is, and they're like, the side effects could be dry mouth, wet in your bed at night, you know, diarrhea, uh, dropping dead, your head might fall off, and bad breath. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus, the symptoms are worse than you had the damn thing, so I might as well just give me the, give me the COVID and I'm good. All right, guys, so don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and check out our Patreon page where we just dropped a bonus episode that you'll want to hear about a guy named Mullen who was nuts, and it's one of our more interesting episodes, so you'll want to check that out. Now, Bill, today we want to talk about psychological profiling because this is how you've been spending a lot of your time for the last few decades and it's also totally relevant to a project that you're working on right now um a tv show and and beyond that it's just how you've actually even if it wasn't a tv show you did get some information that i I don't know how much i can say about it but hopefully will solve a murder is that right or or maybe more is that accurate yeah, that, that, it's along those lines, but you're right. This, but this is something that I've been doing way prior to this uh, particular case coming forward and, and me working on possibly solving this. And, and of course, then doing death row diaries where we're breaking down serial killer cases. So this all has to do with the same situation you know, of, of basically reading people. So yeah, you're 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 on the on that same road that we're talking about. So it's psychological profiling, but it's a specific type because it's profiling killers. There's, right? Is that right? Yes, but it's not only used for that. I mean, I used it just to learn human behavior. I mean, it was a survival tactic for me as a child, and, and that's how I developed it in the way that I did because it was about survival. It's a necessity for me to learn this. Yes, but I applied it later to serial killers and killers to read them and be able to really navigate through truth or lies or exaggerations. Really just is is part of that development. It's just a different area of it. So how do you distinguish your kind of diligence on this? Because I think, you know, there are people that just walk out into the street with headphones on without looking the other way. And there are people that just kind of get duped by scams and get used and tricked into doing all kinds of things, sometimes sexual favors. But, you know, a lot of people do try and assess if someone's bullshitting them or not. They they have a radar for it. And, you know, they'll sit around talking about, I think this guy might be a sociopath and this guy might have childhood insecurities and whatnot. So, I mean, you're not the only person doing this, but where do you draw the line of, you look at yourself as uh, an artist, someone who has some verisimilitude, almost like an academic, a professional in a way, right? Well, that's absolutely correct. You know, a psychologist is, is reads people see what they're going through, their childhood. They they talk it out. They and and they, basically they go home. At the end of the day, they go home. 
there's no risk, there's no necessity there. What I do is a little bit different. I'm not a psychologist, but I stu- I've studied human behavior since I was three years old under the tutelage of my father, who was also a martial artist, an artist, and all these things developed in my life because I had to, I, there was a necessity for me to read situations, people, really to protect myself. And if I can be more specific, you know, my father was a hard man. And, you know, when there was trouble in the house, he was abusive. He was, uh, in those days, they really didn't call it abuse. He was a hard person. He would, he, he believed in corporal punishment. He did something wrong. And he was also, you know, mean when he drank. So as a child, it was me observing my father and understanding certain habits that he had. For example, if he got home at 5.15 on Friday, I knew that everything was going to be okay. He would probably tell me, get ready, we're going hunting, or we're going surfing, or we're going whatever that weekend. And I knew things would be. If it was 5.25 and he hadn't arrived, I knew what he already did, and I was already preparing myself. I knew he'd stop at the liquor store, and I knew he was coming home. And as soon as he got out of his truck and I saw that brown paper bag, remember, I am a five-year-old child, and I already know what's going to happen. So the anxiety picks up. The adrenaline begins to rush to my body, and I'm watching for cues. This is a survival technique. I know, like humans did 100,000 years ago, that when you saw a saber-toothed tiger walking a certain way, if he was hunting or was he just walking, it's small cues like that that I was understanding, that I was focusing on, and I knew what my father was going to do. So that's how I began to develop. I learned to, my first subject matter was my father. I learned to read him like a book, and I knew exactly what he was going to do because at times he became very violent. And then the second stage of that is my training as a fighter. I spent decades fighting in tournaments, and I learned to read other fighters, their movements, how they, they stood, were they on the ball or feet, they leaned back, how focused were they? All these things, it's like a pot, a melting pot. I would put it in the thing, and I would know what was going on with that fighter. How Was he afraid? Was he not afraid? Was he confident? Was he left-handed? Was he right-handed? What did he favor? It's, it's no different than what professional fighters do today when they watch film on other fighters. They may know their habits. Well, I had kind of a computer system in my head where I would memorize their habits. Football players in the NFL do the same thing. Cornerbacks watch receivers. What are their habits? They take four steps in, three in, and they, and they go out in chair formation. All these things are habits that you, you recognize and you memorize from an offense. So I was doing the same thing, and I continued to do so throughout my life. The next stage of my life, Matt, was in the criminal underworld, where I learned to read marks, their habits, what they would do. And it's not, it's not a secret, I was a, a high-end car thief, one of the best known in Southern California in the late 70s and early 80s. And I studied marks, again, for habits, tendencies, behavioral differences. And that is continued to develop today. Did you look into anything academic or any writing on this? Mindhunter comes to mind. I've read that book. There's 
some problems with it. Um, but did you look into the literature of it or did you just, you know, stick with the, the intuitive nature of what you're doing? Well, I did both. I, I obviously knew that what I was doing was hitting the mark. But I also wanted to understand what other profilers or psychologists or behavioral specialists were looking at, what they were studying, what behavioral uh, cues they were reading in order to really learn the entire field. Now, John Douglas comes to mind. He's the FBI's foremost profiler, was at one point. He wrote a book called Mindhunter. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in that book. He's an excellent observer, but he had no real formal training. He was learning along the way. Some of the information that he got was directly from guys like your boy, Temper, and other serial killers that had a motivation, a reason to lie to them, to give them whatever they wanted to feed them to kind of put the whole profiler spectrum on his side. Sure, some of it was true, but most of it was incorrect. And it's obvious when you listen to these, these interviews where Kemper begins to change his diagnoses of what he's talking about over and over again to fit whatever argument or whatever position he's taken. So I've, I've seen and read all of this stuff. So I can see where people would believe that. And it's, hey, it's perfectly okay. John Douglas is a good guy. He pioneered a field that had never been heard of before. But what I bring to the table is my experience and that there's never been another person in this field who has spent more time around killers, serial killers, mass murderers, spree killers, than anybody possibly in history. And I go into the situation with a, with a student's eye. I'm watching to see all their habits on the yard because ultimately, again, my life depends on being able to read a yard and read a group and more importantly, read people individually to see how and what they're going to do next. Yeah, I read Mindhunter because I was curious. I wanted to know kind of the science and the theory behind what he was doing and what he does. And I was actually really disappointed in reading that book because there wasn't one. It was just him kind of talking to people and coming up with theories on the fly there was nothing really to it sometimes he was right sometimes he was wrong in the book he included the times he was right and left out the times he was wrong so with what you're doing is there an actual method like could you write a paper on this could this be a Nagara technique that you have are there certain steps or is it just a more organic free-flowing approach Actually, I have written a book on it, and it's in the process of being published right now. I've signed a contract with a publisher in order to publish this book. And, you know, it's, it's real hush-hush because of the material that's being uh, highlighted in it and me actually doing what's never been done before, which is actually to solve cold cases unequivocally. It's done. Once the book comes out, people will understand what I've done. But yes, there is a method, there's a technique to what I do. And it is something that can be taught, but the person would have had to have gone through everything I've gone through, which has been several, more than five decades of observation. 
It's a very unique technique. It isn't just one thing. The guy twitches, okay, he's lying. No, there's a number of cues. There's a list that I have. For example, when I go out to the yard on death row, there are 750-plus murderers out there, the worst of the worst in the entire state of California. And when I go up to that yard and I step across that line into the concrete jungle that is a level four, really, yard for killers, I'm able to see and understand everything going on in that yard because of habits. I know exactly what the whites are going to be doing because they've been doing the same thing for the past few decades. I'm not doing it on a fly. I know what the Spanish are supposed to be doing, what the blacks are be doing. I know individual people. Who are the guys that are supposed to be working out? Who are the guys that gamble? What are they doing? And every day I go through this basically list of watching what's going on because at any moment something could happen. As I mentioned to you the other day, you were, you were on the phone with me and they came and they took the phone because someone had been brutally attacked in the yard and attempted murder. They stabbed this guy 30 plus times and he's still in the hospital. He's in horrible shape. But this can happen in the blink of an eye. It hasn't happened to me or it hasn't happened where I didn't know it was going to happen because I'm always watching for cues. A yard, just like a flock of birds. Have you ever seen when birds are flying and suddenly all of them cut to the right and all of them cut to the left and you see that they're doing this like a pattern? They're not telling each other, hey, by the way, Henry, let's go to the left. It's all instinctive. I can tell you when a yard shifts. There is a subtle shift and when that thing happens, my antenna goes up. The webbing that I have, which is this primal instinct that I've developed, and every human has it, man. Every human, every at least every male human has it when he used to be a hunter or the hunted, and he understands these cues. Of course, in today's society, that alpha male, that male, is almost extinct. They bred him out of people. In prison, that webbing, that primal instinct is heightened if you allow it to be heightened. And I've allowed it to be heightened. Plus, everything I've learned, everything I've observed in my life gives me an advantage. And when that yard shifts, and I can feel it, my antenna goes up, I can smell adrenaline. I know that sounds almost insane, but dogs smell adrenaline. Their senses are so heightened because they can smell fear. I can smell it. And then I start going through my cues. I look at the first group. How they made coffee. Because coffee is a big thing in prison. If you know you're going to do something, meaning violence, or something's going to happen, you're not going to make a cup of coffee because you ruined your coffee. So I watch, see who's made coffee, who hasn't. I know exactly what guys make coffee and at what time they make coffee because these guys are creatures of habits. If that all checks through, then I start checking individual groups. Are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? Have they switched? Are they dressed? Are they not dressed? So that's just one of the cues. Then you look at another list. What are the guys wearing? Are they wearing what they normally wear? And I know what guys wear. I know what kind of shoes they're normally wearing. Are they wearing steak shoes as opposed to, to regular shoes or their, their you know, prized possession, which are their tennis shoes? And I look at the yard as a whole. When I focus and I find out pretty much who's involved, if it's an individual or a gang, and then I can pretty much tell who it is, what they're doing, because how they're focusing. Then you look at the person who possibly could be a victim. And why? Usually I know who's involved in drug use, who's involved in gambling, who, 
All these things I know about because it's my habit to be intimate with every one of these guys' habits is how I survive. So I just translate that when I deal with individuals like a serial killer. And I'm trying to get to the heart of the matter. I'm trying to get him to talk to me. I'm using everything that I have, including manipulation, the perfect environment, a controlled situation, where I am basically in a in that food chain higher than they are. Everybody wants approval. Believe me when I tell you, everyone, including serial killers, want approval. And I use those things there to set up the right situation in order to get them to talk. So you're kind of like the Jane Goodall of psychopaths. She's looking at academics having theories about chimpanzees, and she's like, all right, well, you can't tell me anything because I lived with them for years and years, and that's how I know. And you just can't know what I know unless you've done what I've done. Well, actually, yeah, I never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. Before she came along, no one really knew about that field because she brought things to the table, observational cues and behavioral habits of, you know, gorillas, monkeys, chimpanzees, whatever it was, that no one had ever observed before. You have to be there. We hear this stuff all the time on nature programs. But this, you know, particular behavior has never been observed before. Because you don't live in the ocean. You're not watching these animals every single day. I am. And I do live with them. So what I bring to the table has never been seen before. I see everything. I watch what serial killer buys pornography, what kind of pornography he buys. Is it in line with the crimes he's here for? There are a lot of different cues and things. That I have an encyclopedia in my brain of every serial killer that's here. And that's how I do what I do. It's something that I believe someone else could do it. But you would have to have gone through everything I've gone through, including the, child, the, the traumatic childhood that I went through, where I had to basically fend for myself in a household where violence was an everyday thing and I was used to subject of being abused. So when you look at a John Douglas and some of these guys, some of these guys that make TV appearances on these crime shows, I guess you could call them pop psychologists, although they have training at Quantico and whatnot, but they're not, uh, you know, doctors in this or anything, but do they usually get it right? Or so what they're basically trying to do is predict behavior. So are we even talking about the same thing here? Well, yes. You know, and you're, you're correct. Sometimes they are right. Look, a, even a plot that doesn't work is, is correct twice a day, right? So, you know, they, they, they form different behavioral patterns because of what other serial killers have told them and some of the MOs and some of the signatures. And they put together a you know, a, a, a book about what they can teach other profilers. But look, there's never been a case in history, and I can tell you this right now, there's never been a case in history where a profiler comes in, looks at the material, talks to a few people, and says, hey, the killer is Jeffrey freaking Jones, and he lives at this address, he's six foot tall, he does this, this, and that, and they go and get him. It doesn't work like that. Usually profilers come in, they, they give opinions, but it's usually police work, detective work, DNA, evidence that's been collected and processed that actually gets you the killer. 
rides one foot any any more. I can tell you that because there's a big old skid mark when he when he, when he walks. So I, I yes, so those are true. But what they what normally frustrates me is that they get all these things that they're talking about from the subjects themselves that have a reason to lie. So of course I know your next question is Matt. Well, they're probably lying to you too, Bill. And I would I would agree with you. The difference is I don't like interview these guys over a one, two hour period or a three or four hour period of visiting a room with a hamburger and you're getting a, a guy to serve you know, the pumps of a woman to get his jollies off. No. I'm doing it over decades. I'm talking to the same guy. I repeat the questions in a different way three years later, two years later, six months later, and I'm getting a feel for this guy and what he wants to talk about. And believe me, a lot of serial killers like to talk. There are some that don't. But a lot like to talk, especially about their accolades as a serial killer. Remember, to them, it's the most important part of their life. It's what they do. And they're in an environment where they can be whoever they want to be. So yes, I bring to the table something no one else can because I live here. Some of them respect me. Some of them know who I am. And they have no fear of talking to me because, hey, I'm just another one of the guys in the block. And they talk. Yeah, and maybe because you talk to them so much, you don't need to resort to clairvoyance or attempts at it. Like in Mindhunter, the guy, the guy predicts that one that one killer probably drives a yellow car. <laughs> I don't know if yeah, I have, I don't know if I have to put this book down. And then he did predict correctly that one of the killers had a stutter. Impressive, I guess, but perhaps irresponsible because uh there's no way you could know that so yeah you're right but how much are you throwing out that's not right and is this just muddying the waters i don't know i'm not trying to come down on douglas i'm sure he's a good guy but uh i'm gonna say he's full shit so bill when you uh are talking to these guys you're talking to liars almost always liars like compulsive liars and how are you gonna know whether or not what they're telling you is accurate or not at all. Well, it's usually consistency. You can't tell someone's consistency in an hour to our interview or knowing them for a couple of weeks. It's very easy to stay on cue when you're lying for just a couple of weeks. It's not so simple when you do it after decades. And that's why I know they're lying to me. I compare notes. They call that. Amen. So how often are they lying or not? I mean, if you pick some random creep out of the yard, like a Joseph Nasso, is he going to give you anything most of the time, just like statistically speaking, or is it every time that they're just going to be spinning a bunch of yarns and just totally messing with you? And, and you know, it's annoying because now you got to look at every single thing. Like, is this right or not? Or, you know what I mean? Like, how often are they honest or not? But even the lies tell me a lot about the person, their ego, their deposition, their particular viewpoint on life. But all of it together tells me the entire story of who he is. So even the lies give me information. But most of the time these guys aren't really lying about their cases because they don't start speaking about their cases with me until they're comfortable with me. And they believe that I'm a kindred spirit. 
I spent a decade on a yard with zero kiddos. I was, as I said, I was the IDAP worker assigned to that yard by the warden and the director of the California Department of Corrections. After being there six months of the year, these guys can very comfortably share photographs of me. They share things, and I ask dumb questions, and, and questions that I believe will garner a response from them. If I see a woman that maybe she's been uh, really thin or maybe on the heavy side, I'd ask them questions that they would appreciate as killers. I ask them, I notice that these women are a particular thing. Is, is there something you like about this? And then they'll smile. I realize something that they, no one's ever asked them before. And then say something like, oh, I see you just noticed. That's very observant. And then they'll start talking to me. And I'll listen. Sure, there's a bit of there's a bit of exaggeration there, but they're dealing with another person with them on the same yard, and they're talking. It's hard to hide these things from me because they're out there sharing photographs. They're out there exchanging victim cards. And I'm watching what they're doing, and they feel very comfortable with me, so they act normal. So yes, do people exaggerate? Absolutely. But for the most part, they're telling me stuff that they've never revealed to anyone ever again. And that's something that I believe they do because they feel comfortable. Look, we've heard of cases, a number of, one of them is Lawrence Bittaker. He was in CIM or CCMC, and he met his serial killer partner there. They shared stories, and then they went out and started killing together. What I'm trying to explain is that serial killers often fantasize about other serial killers and what they could do together. They compare notes. What I fool them into believing is that I appreciate their work and I'm able to basically be one of them while I'm there. Although I'm, I'm not a serial killer, but they feel very comfortable because I'm in a higher position than the food chain in prison. So immediately they want to talk to me. It's a very interesting dynamic. It's something that sometimes, you know, gives me nightmares. I'm, I'm thinking about these guys are telling me it's, it's horrible. And I find it sometimes very difficult to, to restrain myself because they're talking about doing things to people that I just think is horrible. But the bigger picture of that is that I'm able to educate the public in a certain way and give them cues of what these men are like and what they do. And as I've mentioned, all my research has told me one thing, that serial killers are as prevalent as they were in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, 90s. They're just evolving. And there is an uber serial killer out there, probably many, that are now hiding the bodies because they understand the only way to catch them is by leaving evidence behind. That's how all their predecessors have been caught. And this guy, this new serial killer, this new breed, is not doing that. So these guys are actually so deluded that they're telling you a story about dismembering someone and they think, and you're kind of fake laughing along and they really think that you're impressed. Like, Oh, cool, man. Oh, you're, you're a badass or something. What is that? Is that narcissism or is that just, they've been uh, isolated and, and they're far gone. All right. Well, let me give you an example. Let's say that you are a, I don't know, a race car driver, and you're around another bunch of race car drivers, and you're building an engine in your garage that you think is going to blow everybody's doors off. You tend to 
talk to other race car drivers that appreciate what you do about what you have. You brag about your races, all the accolades in your life. You brag about them. Serial killers are no different. They're human beings at the end of the day. They're twisted monsters. But the same motivations that motivate normal people in being dentists or whatever motivates them to be killers. They have a drive in them, a tick, which I call it. I call it tick, but they can't help. And when they're sharing, along with their other group members, I happen to be along this ride. And I ask them, I don't, I don't ever laugh at them because they take that as an insult that you're making fun of them. Some of them are very touchy about that. So I'm very serious. I'm listening to them. And they want praise. They want understanding of what they're doing, and they want affirmation. Some don't. I've, I've spent years talking to now the deceased baby game killer, Rodney Akala, an extremely intelligent man. I would say he has the highest IQ of all the serial killers I've been around. And let me tell you, he was very proud of what he did. It took me years to get close to him, to be able to talk to him in a manner which he felt that I wasn't frowning upon him, or anything else, because remember, he was a child molester. He was a rapist, serial rapist, murderer. He loved to kill women, children. It was very difficult for me to talk to that guy, but I did so because I wanted to be able to educate later on the public about what these guys are about. I was doing something no one else had done, and this isn't me bragging about. This is a very difficult job to be able to do what I do by being in prison. To get this information and put it out to the public to help the public understand how these guys are is a very deadly business. Because at some point, when all this stuff comes out, there's going to be a huge target on my chest, and I understand that. I'm going to go back to something you said a minute ago. So, yeah, at the end of the day, these are people. They want acceptance, and they need to feel needed, so they have a purpose. But you use the race car analogy, and the the obvious response to that is no one's ashamed of being a race car driver. No one feels there's anything unethical about building race cars and, and going out to the track. So uh, it's hard for me to kind of see your point exactly. Well, I'll make it clear to you. They don't have any of those safety mechanisms that a normal human being does where you talk about race car driving or whatever, and there's no wrong about it. You know, you race cars. But to them, what they do, there really isn't nothing wrong with it. Now, if you ask them intellectually, do you know what you do is wrong in taking a body, a human life, they'll answer the normal response. Well, of course I know it's wrong. But do they feel it? Do they understand empathy? Do they understand? No, they don't. They are complete narcissistic sociopaths that have no understanding about the actual impact that it has on people's lives when you take their lives. So, to answer your question... You there? Yeah, I'm letting her talk. Hmm. Uh, she's got that classic bureaucratic droll, that Ben Stein cadence. Anyway, keep going. Okay. So, in short, they don't actually 
actually look at what they do as being wrong. They, they may say they understand it's wrong, and if you ask them, they may spill tears and, oh, I'm sorry for what I did. They don't feel any of that. They just respond like they think you want them to respond. So like I said, when John Douglas and the FBI guys would interview these serial killers, they would cry, they would say they're sorry, they understand what they did. It's all an act. They don't understand none of that. They're giving you the natural human response because they've seen it on television. At that point, all they're doing is performing. That's it. They're performing for the camera. They're performing for them. The law enforcement agents, that's all they're doing. What they do here is completely different. As I said before, a lot of these serial killers have fans who are also budding serial killers. And they write them asking them questions. How were you caught? I read this. Is this true? And these serial killers educate other serial killers or potential serial killers on how not to get caught. This is another thing that law enforcement has never even considered. And I see it happening all the time. And that's why I'm confident in saying to you here and to the audience that there is an evolution of serial killers in the United States. And it's happening now. So one example of your work on this, I think one of your more extensive cases, is Joseph Naso, who we referenced earlier, but I'm assuming most of our listeners right now may have not uh, heard of him. We did a Patreon episode where we really broke down how you got to know him and, and earned his trust and extracted some information from him. But could you just do like a quick recap of who Naso is and your experience with him? Well, Joseph Naso is a serial killer. He's been mistakenly identified as the alphabet killer or the initials killer. That's not who he is. The alphabet or initials killer was a Rochester, New York murderer who killed children. Joseph Naso is a serial killer who likes to uh, murder women and rape them uh, by strangulation. He's a different beast, different animal, and he's he was arrested because of a list that they found with a certain name, I mean, certain identifications that led law enforcement to uh, seeking out uh, references to those particular entries in this list. And of course, they found bodies there, and they were able to arrest them because of DNA. He also had, had journals that he had been raping since 1950, and there was over 160 entries into his rape journal where he would talk about the women that he would rape and how he wrote, raped them and where he took them. So this is a guy that who also was a professional photographer, and I was able to, because of my profession as an artist, a visual artist, he seemed to be very impressed by me, and I was able to get very close to him. I was his care provider for many years on the ADA yard, and he began to confide in me. And really, I was able to write a book about him, which, as you mentioned, is getting published next year. And there's a lot of interest from um, television series and networks about that particular case. I can't say a whole lot about it other than to say that the case itself is explosive. It's going to reveal things to the public that no one's ever heard before. And it is going to not only educate the public, but also hopefully bring a bit of resolution or closure uh, to some families. All right. So you ended up getting access to these guys through a twist of fate. 
there was some development with the Americans with Disabilities Act, and it turned out that a lot of these serial killers who were protected, you know, in protected custody in a separate area of the prison needed care, and they needed to find a fellow prisoner to take care of them. And this had never happened before, but they, I guess, found the most responsible person they could find, which was you. And, and that's how you ended up kind of being surrounded by these guys. Correct me if I'm wrong. Now, when you were given this job, which is all it is, all it was, did you know this is what you're going to do with it? Or what did you, uh, what did you foresee happening? Yeah, that's a good question. But, um, and the simple answer is that I didn't have the entire scope of the idea. Of course, when the warden asked me to become the IDAP worker, it interests me. I under I also understood that it was very uh, it was a controversial position because I would be in a yard with a bunch of serial killers that everybody here wanted to kill, and my job as a convict would be to go out there and do what what prison behavior dictates, which is to harm them. Of course, that was not my intention, nor has it ever been my intention to follow prison politics or prison rules so the idea was well it was i had both sides i was worried that people would be upset and might possibly harm me because i wasn't doing what i was supposed to do which is harm them but there's another part of me that was very excited because i had been studying human nature behavior and serial killers for even decades before this so i was able i was getting put in the midst of them So, of course, you know, we had to cut off for a minute because they were announcing something, but, um, yeah, there was a part of me that was excited about doing this because I knew I would be in their midst. Of course, I didn't have the idea to write a book until I was on the yard and began to get a pretty good layout of a landscape. Who was there? Who was trying to talk to me right away? And, of course, one of the first guys that really got close to me because he saw that I was an artist was this individual named Joseph Naso. And from there, because of the interaction, because of what he shared with me, I would take notes. And over that decade, I ended up writing what is now a complete manuscript, an intimate portrait of his life as a, from, a, from childhood all the way to today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline So you learned how to do this and you are, I guess, one of the few people put in the environment who was interested in doing this, who was actually just thrown into that environment. So do you think anyone could learn how to do this or is there something innate about it? Well, there's an instinct, a primal instinct that I have 
started very early on because of the environment I lived in. As I mentioned, my father watching cues, behavioral differences, their traits. And yes, someone else could do it if they lived that type of life. It didn't have to be exactly like my life. But if they were introduced to trauma and, you know, both emotional and physical, and that you had to develop the necessity to develop these skills as a child, if they could do that, of course, I'm sure that they can also do this, but all the, the, the numbers have to find, uh, fall into place. They would have to become a fighter like I was, or maybe something close to that to understand fighter's cues, and then later on become a guy who was in the criminal underworld and watched people, and then come to prison and, and be on a yard where he had, for his own survival, learn the habits of every person on the yard and understand traits, behavioral traits, human nature, human behavior, it would be very difficult for someone to do what I do. And that's why I'm the only one doing it. Now, on top of that, he would have to have an interest in it like I do. And I just don't see that happening, man. Is there any particular guy who you tried to crack and just wouldn't let you in and frustrated you and you felt that you, I guess, kind of failed at what you were trying to do? Well, there's just a couple of cases that come to mind. Um, a lot of guys will talk to me, but they won't allow me in. And, and they don't let anybody in. Um, and one of them that happened to be my neighbor for a very long time, and it took decades. I've known this guy since 1987. And it took probably between 25 and 27 years to actually crack him. It was very frustrating. And that is the scorecard killer, Randy Kraft. About 27 years to finally get into his head and allow me in. And there is some difference with him because of his sexuality. He is gay and he killed gay men. So that was a very difficult thing. I think it had to do with probably his inability to accept who he was, as well as maybe in some way finding me to be, I don't know, a person that he would probably think of as a victim. He liked tall men, short haircuts, using military type of guys. So maybe that took him like a while to be able to talk to me as a peer rather than a potential victim. That's a very complicated uh, thesis right there. But I believe that's what took him a while to be able to. And a while is more than a quarter of a century. That's the biggest one that comes to mind, and one a guy of a guy who had a kill count of over forty-seven. That's a very high kill count, and um, he is considered one of the the golden serial killers. He talks to nobody, but he did talk to me, and he has continued to talk to me. And that is another possible book that I may be at some point looking at writing the whole thing. Do you have any go-to stock opening lines that you use with these guys? Like, uh, man, it's hot today. You could really decompose a body in this heat, right? Anything like that? <laughs> you mean as opposed to you work out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, no, I, I, that's a good one, man. I mean, there's no wonder you're, you're a comedian, but no, there's not really that. It's just you just kind of get a feel for it. You kind of just go into the situation and, you know, and kind of let them come to you. This is a very controlled environment that I'm able to do what I do because most of the time these guys come to me 
they want my acceptance, they want to talk to me, and over anything. And it can be, like I said, with, with Randy Kraft, it could have been that I was looked upon as a potential victim. If I were out, he probably would have tried to kill me. So, um, different circumstances, different killers, as I mentioned before, every killer is different. And I mean serial killer is different. And just like every person is different, they have different personalities, different motivations. And you have to really sit down, observe them, get to know them, so you can look close enough to find that end. And once I see the end, I go to it. Well, this is fascinating stuff. This is the first. This hasn't happened before, to my knowledge. And I'm really interested in it. And Bill, I always find your conversations intriguing. We'll be back next week where we apply what you're talking about to a certain killer who will be named later. Also, a listener asked uh, a question that maybe we should do one where you profile me. You've talked to me enough now at this point. That might be interesting, but uh, (laughs) maybe we'll kick that down the road. (laughs) So until next time, I've been Matt Ralston. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life can depend on it. We'll see you next time.